This is Uncovering Inclusion, a podcast about disabilities in Minnesota. Welcome to episode five of Uncovering Inclusion. This is the last episode of our mini-series on the home of the Angels in Minnetonka, Minnesota, a private group home where small children with disabilities were abused by young staff under duress at the direction of owner and operator Ethel Mann. In this final episode, we'll talk about how the home of the angels came to be and be so bad. Then, compare how far we've come and discuss how far we still have to go until people with disabilities are able to live fully included lives. During this part, you'll meet my friend Dylan, who will start hosting with me as we build our project to include more disability advocates. There's nothing sinister seeming about the neighborhoods and streets around Lake Minnetonka or Minnehaha Creek outside of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. If you visit, you'll feel why indigenous people consider the land sacred. When you look close, past the scars left by European ancestors and the wounds of today, it's still as beautiful as I bet it always was. Even with a history filled with so many ugly things. From the lakes and land to people's rail and boat trolleys, steamships, cruises, and public gardens of the late Greenbelt Brewing family. The list of wonderful things to experience in and around Minnetonka is many. As my fiancé Gina and I drove through looking for Home of the Angels in the spring of 2020, I marveled at the architecture, I wondered how different everything looked since Shirley's infant son, John, had made a similar journey to a big, beautiful old home with wonderful landscaping backing up to a creek. We call it Home of the Angels because they are all our little angels. I assume that most people don't start out to slowly and elaborately torture children. And I live based on the belief that all of us are capable of many acts on the binary between good and evil. So what the hell happened to Ethel Mann? And what happened after 50 kids were taken away from the home? So children like John had a chance at surviving after the discovery of such horrendous living and working conditions. What follows is a summary of more of the newspaper articles, State Department and legal documents we were able to access about the angels that weren't confidential. Special thanks again to Melinda Tosin for her skills at the Gale Research Library inside of the Minnesota Historical Society. Left to my own devices, I for sure would have broken almost every single of the 500,000 rules, both accidentally and on purpose. 
So, as it turns out, Mrs. Mann's mother operated a similar style home to the Angels for children with disabilities, which Mrs. Mann, at the time, Ethel Berkison, helped work at in her youth. So, when Ethel got married and became Mrs. Ethel Mann and started a life of her own with her husband, Harvey, it made sense for her to go into the same line of work as her mother had done. So, together with her husband, Harvey, and a doctor, a staff that included nursing students and individualized plans for each child, the home of the angels started out as a place, although left with much to be desired, that disabled children could lead a life with some quality. At some point, however, Dr. Tudor and some parents believed it would be beneficial to the children and the day-to-day operations of the homes for it to become a nonprofit. When Dr. Tudor and a group of parents came to Mrs. Mann with these ideas, she adamantly disagreed, opting instead to continue to operate the home the way she believed it should be run, deciding her own level of oversight and necessary expenses. This way, Mrs. Mann could continue to profit from the home as human rights requirements resulting in new expenses surrounding the lives of people with disabilities increased. This disagreement between Mrs. Mann and the other families caused Dr. Tudor to depart with some of the parents and children, his nursing students, the children's individualized plans, and proper medical oversight. Dr. Tudor, along with his staff and parents, unsuccessfully attempted to get a new nonprofit group home started to serve the same population of children that lived at Home of the Angels. When they were unable to do so, they just sort of went on with their lives without reporting Home of the Angels and never really followed up with a state welfare department that Milena and I could find except for Dr. Tudor, who would sometimes come around to look at the children. This now left 50 children without medical care or individualized plans or goals. But because parents only visited once a month during Visitor's Day, if that, and those events were hosted in Ethel Mann's main home where everyone could visit docile children, dressed well with entertainment and like supervision from the staff people didn't really seem to notice this change when people did notice mrs mann had a way of sort of beating people to the punch she would fire them before they could report her so if they did they would end up looking like a disgruntled former employee or she would take advantage of the lack of knowledge surrounding disability and life expectancy. Even as some children died, never making it to the hospital to receive life-saving care outside of the home, the angels continued to take in new residents. After all, just like Mrs. Mann had said to her staff the day she called them horseshit people, her home was much better than the institutions that existed around the state of Minnesota at this same time in the 1960s and 1970s. And the truth is, she's actually right. Well, that the quality of life for the children at her home 
and survival rate was better for kids and infants there with her than it was for disabled people chained to walls, naked and starving in some other places. But it's abundantly clear in her open letters back to the welfare department that she feels like people without disabilities aren't people and that she is doing society a favor by keeping them out of sight and out of mind. Ethel Mann is also abundantly clear in her belief that regardless of whether or not some of the charges brought against her and the home were indeed true and accurate, that she was the one being mistreated by an evil social welfare department set on taking away her livelihood and life's purpose. In one article, she compares the Minnesota Welfare Department demanding that she make adequate and necessary updates to ensure the children live in a healthy and safe environment as similar tactics used by Nazi police. She openly referred to social welfare workers in Minnesota as the Gestapo and repeatedly refused to make necessary updates or relinquish control of operations at Home of the Angels. After many months of an open and hostile fight in the press and in rooms with Ethel Mann's attorney in Minnesota State, Ethel Mann's license became revoked. Finally. <sighs> because for whatever reason, literally no one was like, hey, Ethel, you actually should be in jail for um, murder and a lot of other things, so maybe just shut up. Uh, Mrs. Mann actually attempted to apply for a new license to run a different home at a later date, but was denied when Mr. Tapper, the head of the welfare department who cracked open what was going on at the home of the Angels, found out and sent a letter detailing Mrs. Mann's incompetencies. The entire back and forth is absolutely bizarre to read from the future. My friend Melena and I kept looking at one another like, is this even real? Well, we found more articles after weeks of coming up, kind of finding a small amount of information and not a lot. From what we could tell, Ethel Mann was not allowed to apply for a license again in Minnesota and eventually was forced to sell her home. Other than that, outside of a civil case, the ones I know of were losing battles for the plaintiffs, Ethel faced no jail time, paid no fines, and issued no public apologies to the families or the children for the terrible conditions they were subjected to at Home of the Angels. Mrs. Ethel Mann went on to live with her husband and children until old age when she passed away and her remains were interned at a military cemetery next to Harvey. I wish I could confront her about what she did. I could have easily ended up in a home like hers had I been born a couple of decades earlier. The comments of the neighbors who lived around the home of the angels is even more disheartening. They continuously share their concerns with whether or not their property values are going to decrease and how what happened at the Home of the Angels reflects poorly on their neighborhood. I just wanted to read one article where a neighbor remarked something like, 
Those poor children, they didn't deserve that kind of treatment. But I don't recall finding a single one. Part of me is glad I can't meet Ethel Man, because I'd find something about her I like, and I hate when I play into stereotypes about disabled people, like how disabled people are often referred to as happy-go-lucky and incapable of hate, like a dog that comes back for pets after being kicked by its owners. Not that I believe people's characters should be judged solely off of harm they've committed during their life. And we should remember this as we're remembering Ethel. But we do have a responsibility to make sure that people know her actions were not justified, completely inhumane and illegal, and that we won't stand for that type of treatment towards any living thing. Something that I was completely astounded by that Milena and I found was that during this entire thing, even after all of this information came out about how the children were treated at the Angels, there was a family who supported Ethel in becoming their son's legal guardian so he could stay living with her instead of going back to live with them or needing to find a new home. To have your own family publicly support someone who fed you gruel and made you sleep in a bag is horrific. What's more horrific is that the entire guardianship exchange was entertained and reported on in the first place. As if any reporter would dignify adults speaking of children like some kind of societal burden. The home of the angels seemed to sit on the market forever for such a prime location in Minnetonka Mills so close to the lake and on a creek. But buyers were scarce. Eventually, the home was purchased by an individual who seemed to never inhabit it before then selling the house to an organization that ran it as a Prater Willie group home. We'll do future episodes on Prater Willie, but a short and general description is that people who have it almost have an insatiable hunger that can be almost possible to ignore. If there is food, they'll most likely desire to consume it, even if that makes them sick and even if they know they shouldn't. And after its time as a Prater Willie home, gone, vanished. Even the address doesn't exist anymore on a map, like it never even happened. My friend Dylan, like a lot of my friends, have been talking to me behind the scenes as I've completed these episodes. I'll let you all get to know Dylan yourselves. But something I will say is that he's one of my favorite and best natural supports. It's always this kind of magic when your friends come together in a circle of support around you and find ways to help you so you can be fully independent. When I became my own guardian when I was a senior in high school, I demanded to hold my own meeting and took myself off of special education services. My case manager told me I should focus on getting a job instead of a college education. She wouldn't let me do PSEO and instead encouraged me to continue to work at the mall, which I actually did 
all the way through college. I never felt challenged in school and spent half of it leaving to go explore in the woods or smoke pot and play music. My case manager never even looked at me during my IEP meetings. Leaving the room the day that I exercised my rights as my own guardian, I felt so fucking powerful. Having people like Dylan in my life are what helped me from ever having to go back to a place like that again. And now I want to introduce you to my friend and co-host, Dylan. Yeah, hi, I'm Dylan. I manage a group home in the Twin Cities, and I've been in disability services for like 10 years, and I really love it, and I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so I did a thing with Callie really quick where I was like, how do we know each other? But So I'm going to do it for you Mm. really briefly. Okay, so how I know Dylan, so Dylan and I have both been each other's bosses. I think that's the... Long and short of it, mm-hmm. we've worked for one another, and we're friends, and mm-hmm. we're advocates together. I know the place we've worked together where you've been my boss mm-hmm. is huge and really nice. And so that's a thing I think that people don't think about is like, I used to think of group, group home as more like a halfway house or something, yep. where it was this like, kind of really kind of like crummy, shitty yep. ass falling apart house. And they're not like that. I remember being a case manager and like rolling up on McMansions. So mm-hmm. why don't you just describe for people in the year 2020 what a lot of group homes in Minnesota are like? Yes. Okay. So good news. It's not like that anymore. It's not like Home of the Angels anymore. It really isn't. Hopefully we'll spend a lot of time talking about the ways it can be better. But we have made a ton of progress, and that's due to a lot of amazing people, hopefully some of whom we can get on the podcast and uh, hear from. But uh, yeah, it's a lot better. So now the kind of classic group home that I imagine is a pretty spacious, multiple living areas, a dining room, a nice big open kitchen, uh, two levels... Uh, it's, you know, five bedrooms and four of them are used by residents and then one has a staff, is a staff room or something, you know. And they're really comfortable and they're out in the suburbs, right? Because that's where we can afford to get them nice spacious houses at. And the theory is that why shouldn't they have somewhere nice to live, right? Which is born out of, you know, this trend in the 70s where integrated housing became really important to people community housing so yeah they're in your neighborhood right if you live in the suburbs you probably have one pretty darn close to you so would it be the same like mrs man she owned the house so is it like that now where people just kind of like could i start a group home could you start a group home could i be like my house is gonna be a group home now like i'm just gonna take in like kids with disabilities right no that would be against the law you need to get licensed and those licenses are only granted if certain stipulations are met things like uh the temperature of the water right coming out of the faucets shouldn't exceed 120 because people can burn themselves and you know uh people with certain disabilities not all people with disabilities but people with certain disabilities are more likely to be burned 
and some psychotropic medication makes you more sensitive to the sun and those kinds of things, right? So rules like that, rules about uh, certain, you have to have access to certain things like a telephone. Um, you have to be able to access your community with some, uh, some regularity. Some of these things are enforced less uh, strictly than they should be, but this is what sort of the expectation is. You know, you have to have uh, food to eat that's fresh and healthy and made for you, you know what I mean, if that's what you need, or helped to whatever degree you need it. You basically are entitled to, you have rights, and there is actually a Bill of Rights that um, dictate how the rules around the services we provide and it's things like, you know, you have the right to know about your treatment plan and have input into how it's implemented, right? Which is a huge change. I've never seen a bookshelf. Right, and that sucks. In the living room of a single group home, right. when, I, when I really think about it. You know what you have seen, probably, though, is piles of books in their room. Sure, yep. Right? Yep. And what a weird thing to allow in one setting and not the other, right? Like, 100%. I don't know a lot of people who just have stacks of books on their floor or, not if you're not or, or in their yeah. dresser, you know right. what I mean, or something, you know, or just on this like weird Ikea bookshelf and it's stuff that they never touch. They haven't touched for years, but they like having it there maybe maximum, but they're not encouraged to engage with it. You know yeah. what I mean? But yeah, I your point, your overall point is well taken that there's a, there's a certain lack of dynamism to the living spaces. They feel a little sterile sometimes. So I think it's really weird that really only in group homes that I've seen because in other shared living arrangements, like you'd still kind of have your shit mm -hmm. in the living room, right? right? Shared, you wouldn't kind of have mm -hmm. this like barren gathering space and then right. like almost like a dorm room. Right type situation and so I think like what does an environment like that do to um, contributing or subtracting from your ability to gain new skills or learn things like reading or getting better at it or avoid losing what you've learned right right I think that often uh, through a an intentionally manifested lack of risk right we try to be risk averse obviously right um people coming to harm while in our care is not something we want right so we sort of do weird little neurotic things that we sort of semi half associate with the impulse for safety sure. right and that is orderly thinking right an ordered, regimented, predictable. Just the uh, environmental ways in which we are or aren't sacrificing uh, letting people be individuals. Right. What you would call person-centeredness, right? Person -centeredness, right. Uh, sacrificing person-centeredness for order rather than sacrificing person-centeredness for safety which you could say at times is arguably necessary, yeah. right? Someone's about to walk in front of a bus and they're blind and they didn't 
perceived this bus because they were too upset one day, right? And they were stomping away, right? And they were about to walk in front of a bus, right? You might say that it's justified that we grab them by the upper arm and pull them back away from the, out of the, out of harm's way, right? Out from dying, yeah. right? Out from bus, right? Murder. So I think we can say probably with pretty good moral clarity that that is a justified limitation of person-centeredness, Correct. right? And then the question is, how far back from that level of urgent and emergent scenario do you go before you let people take their own risks, right? Mm -hmm. So probably what he did was just hug some girl he thought was pretty. Yeah. Again, right? Right. People don't... People, people have this bizarre circumvention of the obvious when it comes to the motivations of people with disabilities. Yeah. Right? He just wanted to be close to someone that he really liked, and he didn't know because he was not socialized, and because he was kept in a bag. Right, right. So right. he doesn't I mean, know, so he doesn't know how to not hug, you know, he doesn't know. Right. And no one knows how to teach him. Right. Because no one's trying, <laughs> it like, seems like bizarre to me that it's like how could how can you blame somebody so much when when you legitimately know that they were kept in a bag that they were fed food not meant for human consumption all these other right. unspeakable things didn't even Torture. know their own name and then you're like yeah then they were at Macy's yeah and didn't follow a social rule right on an escalator and then about personal space with, mm -hmm. with a, a human right excuse me it's like you they legitimately people with disabilities back then were forced away they were never given a chance were never taught any kind of social rule and then were held to these standards that they would never meet and that was used as reasoning mm -hmm. for keeping them separate and, mm -hmm. and people are still separate yeah yeah and uh yeah the the weight of normality that weighs on society right the narrowness of what we're prepared for to see when we leave our house is really killing disability inclusion.